Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books and Political Science Podcast. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be talking to the authors of Why Washington Won't Work, University of Chicago Press publication this year. The authors are Mark Hetherington and Thomas Rudolph. I hope that you really enjoy the interview that I did with them today. Welcome back to the podcast. I have Mark Hetherington and Thomas Rudolph here to talk about the their book, Why Washington Won't Work. First, Mark Hetherington. Mark, how are you doing? I'm fine. Thanks for having me today, Heath. Yeah, it's a pleasure. And, and Tom, yourself, you're, you're also doing well. We're all in three different places. Yep, doing well. Great to be with you guys. Good. Mark, maybe you could briefly introduce yourself, and then, Tom, I'll allow you to introduce yourself as well. So, Mark, maybe just tell us briefly about yourself. Well, I'm Mark Hetherington. Uh, I'm a professor of political science at Vanderbilt University, and uh, I've been all over the place. I got my Ph.D. at the University of Texas, taught in at a small college in Maine for a number of years, and uh, I'm glad to be uh, out of the winter um, at this point. <laughs> right. And Tom, how about yourself? Uh, I'm a professor of political science at the University of Illinois, um, sort of making a tour of the Big Ten. I uh, got my degree at Minnesota. Spent a year as an NES fellow at Michigan, and I've been here at Illinois since 2001. Yeah, super. Let's let's talk about the book. It's such a um, timely and, and interesting book that I've been looking forward to talking to you guys about it. Um, so, Mark, you, you begin the book with, a, I guess, what could be described as a critique of the ongoing debate about polarization and ideology. So what are the limits of how some scholars have interpreted polarization and Congress and and sort of what what is this book trying to speak to in those ways? Well, I think this is in many ways the crux of the matter. Um, you know, as academics often do, you know, they they um, find something somewhat counterintuitive in in this sense that, you know, uh, at least some of the past literature suggests, well, there's no polarization. But what that really suggests or what they really suggest is that there's no polarization in people's ideological preferences or their issue positions. Um, And, you know, frankly, from 50 years of public opinion research, that would actually be the last place that one would find it because most voters don't know a lot about politics. They don't think ideologically. Um, And what we try to do is to... um, reinvigorate this debate in a lot of ways by suggesting that there are all sorts of other places that one might look for um, polarization and, um, you know, how people feel about politics and particularly how people feel about the other side. You know, it's become so negative these days. And, uh, right. you know, that's where poli- that's where polarization exists. And, you know, we, we tend to think that it's even worse than if it were ideological in character. Now, Tom, one of the other aspects of this book is the connection between uh, polarization and and other factors in Congress and how that relates to political attitudes among the electorate. I wonder if you could describe that that connection. What is what is the link between these two things at the at the national level in Washington and then among the broad population? 
Well, um, I think there's a lot of evidence uh, that, that polarization exists at the elite level among members of Congress. And uh, the debate, of course, has been whether or not the public is similarly polarized. And as Mark said, a lot of that search and debate has been focused on people's ideology or their policy preferences. And I think where this book takes a step forward is to look at people's feelings toward the other side, not just their issue preferences. And and why would a member of Congress... Um uh, use that information? I mean, how does this relate to other issues of representation, for instance, because we've, we, we haven't, uh, I'm sort of making that connection explicit seems to me one of the real important parts of the book. So are the two connected? Do members of Congress look to the electorate for those kinds of cues? Well, I think they're always looking at uh, public opinion in the electorate in terms of representation. Um, I think members um, have a sense of wanting to represent certainly their constituents, but also the broader public at large. And a lot of times, um, you know, the, the public's willingness to support particular policies in Congress depends on whether or not they trust the people that are proposing those policies. And Mark, let's let's talk just about that, because your, your book in many ways is less about polarization and more about trust. Mm-hmm. So what do we know about trust and, and why is it so important for us to understand the, uh, the current state of affairs in Washington based on a better understanding of trust among the electorate? Yeah, well, that's a great question. Um, You know, what we know about trust, especially over the last 30 or 40 years, is that mostly most Americans don't have much of it as it relates to the government in Washington. Um, You know, back in the 1960s and and, uh, in the 1950s, when survey researchers first started to ask these questions, it wasn't uncommon for, you know, 65 or 70 percent of people to say they trusted the government in Washington to do what was right at least most of the time. Um, but, you know, for the last uh, 30 or 40 years, um, you know, the, those percentages have tended to be, you know, somewhere between 25 and 35 percent. But what's really interesting and what's going on here is the fact that trust in government has polarized. It used to be that, you know, Republicans and Democrats in the electorate didn't used to differ very much in their um, levels of trust in government. You know, it was a little bit higher for Democrats when Democrats were in office and a little bit higher for Republicans when Republicans were in office. But that's changed fundamentally over the last 10 years or so. And, you know, the, the fact that there's no trust in government among people who don't identify with the president's party makes it nearly impossible um, for policymakers, well, for policy to emerge. Um, you know, the, what the public has traditionally done over the years is nudge their policymakers towards compromise because, you know, let's face it, elites, um, you know, those who represent us, they, they, they have, you know, strong ideas about the way politics ought to work, you know, the way that uh, issues ought to be resolved. And, um, you know, voters are, you know, tend to be more in the middle, more pragmatic, I guess, would be a good way of looking at it. Um, but without trusting government among people whose party is out of power, um, they tend to be very skeptical of the ideas that the president's party puts forth. And so they put no pressure on um, their members to actually compromise on specific issues. Tom, where do you look for the information for this for this book? There's a lot of interesting data here. Um, What are your sources? How How did you do this book? Well, we really have a collection of a lot of data sources. Um, Some of the overtime analyses have made use of the National Election Studies data. Um, So we have a a time series chapter that really tracks 
um, trust in government over time, and, and we use some NES data in that, um, along with um, virtually all of the public opinion polls that have been done on trust in government that are um, made available through the Roper Center. Uh, but we also used um, some more recent uh, panel data from the national election studies. We um, have done some experiments um, in uh, in some other surveys and uh, among students at our universities as well. So there's really um, you know a variety of different types of data, and they allow us to um, address issues of causality from a number of different perspectives. So and I'd Mark, just like to piggyback one thing onto that. Please, I think that's please. one of the the real. Um, Virtues of of the work that we've done here, you know, oftentimes, you know, when one uses one method, um, you know, one uh, specific approach to, you know, making an argument, you know, you'll convince some people, um, but, you know, there are other people who might use different data or use them in different ways. Um, uh, so there might be a lot of skepticism. Um, and what we've really tried very hard to do is to use as many approaches as possible um, to make our case as clear as we possibly can. Now, Mark, let me follow up on on some of one of the first things that really stood out to me. I, I found one of the most interesting um, findings and one of the most interesting figures in the whole book, and that's and that's figure seven point three. So, based on what you've just said, we we see this polarization of trust and trust particularly among Republicans is very low. Mm-hmm. I wonder if you could describe. Uh, what you what you did in seven point three, and and what this says about the variation across parties in trust, because it just struck me as a really powerful uh, part of of um, you know explaining the your thesis, but also the nuance that that is in the book that 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 maybe provides for some hope in in an otherwise somewhat um, unhopeful uh, series of findings. So maybe tell us about figure seven point three. Um, well, you know what we, uh, you know what we find in this uh, chapter. So, uh, chapter seven, I think, is you know in many ways um, the most interesting, maybe the most important uh, of the findings that we have. And and what we show um, in chapter seven is that um, when it comes to economic stimulus, people don't necessarily get it. Um, necessarily, because you know it runs so counter to people's uh, personal experience. So, you know the the best exa- the best solution to a flagging national economy, um, uh, at least as far as uh, economists are concerned, is to try to stimulate the economy with more spending. Because you know you have less um, uh, money being pumped into the economy by ordinary people, so government has to pick up the slack. But that seems very strange that government would run bigger deficits when times are bad, because that's exactly the opposite of what families have to do. They have to tighten their belt. All right. So there's a lot of confusion there. Um, and people are asked to do kind of a surprising uh, thing, and that is support the government spending more money during bad times. And that, you know, of course, is going to prop up demand and allow uh, businesses to continue to produce things and to sell things and so forth. So, um, but you know, so so what's necessary under circumstances like that um, is for people to trust the government to say, oh, that is a good idea, um, uh, uh, even though it doesn't seem like um, it necessarily would be. And what what you know we show in this case is that you know among liberals, liberals don't 
necessarily need to trust the government a lot to to go along with that because the president who's suggesting it is liberal um, and moreover um, you know using the government to solve problems is something that liberals do but you know moderates and conservatives really need to trust the government to go along with um, proposals like this from the from the administration um, so if trust in government is high among people in this group they're willing to support the president's ideas but if it's low they're unwilling to support the president's ideas and here's the payoff for this um, in this you know particularly difficult time you know and, and the data that we had were collected um, uh, you know as related to Obama's uh, first term in office you know when the economy was terrible trust in government in general is going to be low and we find that it was particularly low among Republicans um, so with no Republican support in the electorate there was no incentive for Republicans in the Congress to really go along with the with the president on you know on big spending increases to try to prop up demand and since there was no you know push there we ended up with a, a compromise that was really heavy on tax cuts low on spending increases um, and uh, and probably a stimulus that was less effective than it might have been otherwise yeah I mean what I found so interesting is is the you're, you're finding that that liberals moderates and conservatives who trust the government uh, what you describe is about always mm-hmm. um, support increased spending by the government at about the same rate. Exactly. So that the, the these these partisan differences really wash away. Now, now the you know, the, the caveat is that there are very few conservatives who fit into that category. Mm-hmm. But those who do are remarkably similar to um, liberals and, and moderates. Tom, later in the book, you you go you sort of take this a step further to look at who different groups trust, different parts of government. And the the Tea Party really stands out, uh, and, and those that support the, the Tea Party stand out in, in that chapter, Chapter 9 and, and Table 9.3. I wonder if you'd explain a little bit about the analysis in, in Chapter 9 and, and maybe how this relates to what's been going on in Washington, specifically how you know members of the, the Tea Party in Washington are looking to the supporters of the Tea Party in the country for different cues about how much uh, trust they place in the government. Yeah, there are a couple things going on uh, in that particular table. Um, you know, one of the general findings that we found is that regardless of, uh, you know, which group one belongs to in terms of ideology or, part or, uh, or party or gender or race, is that people tend to have higher levels of trust in particular government agencies like the EPA or the Department of Defense or Health and Human Services than they do uh, in government as a whole. So when people are asked whether they trust the government without further clarification, a lot of times the level of trust that they give is a lot lower. Um, I think you know, we reason that when people are asked about uh, trust in particular agencies, a lot of times they have more clearly in mind uh, perhaps some of the benefits that they receive from those agencies, and, and so their level of trust um, is a bit higher. And, and that holds true even for members of uh, the Tea Party. So, of course, you know, their raw level of trust in government um, is, is quite low, um, but even they ha- express higher levels of trust in uh, particular uh, branches of government. Um, um, so, for example, the Tea Party 
has greater trust in the EPA than it does in government as a whole. Um, and of course, the EPA is not, uh, you know, an agency that you would think a member of the Tea Party would be ideologically predisposed uh, to view favorably. So, so what what do we do about this? This this would I think strike most as as a troublesome uh, state of affairs. And towards the end of the book, you you make a couple of recommendations um, that that might change this. But you you seem somewhat skeptical even about how effective those might be. And so you you suggest that um, you know something like Nixon going to China in in the 1970s provided a way to to really shift. The views on that on that issue. So, walk walk us through a little bit about how you've uh, how you've thought about um, w- what can be done about this state of affairs. Well, this is a very difficult um, problem. Uh, you know what we were you know trying to figure out in in these last couple of chapters is you know how how much hope is there, and you know the couple of things that we looked into um, that might be you know helpful is redefining you know encouraging political leaders to you know talk about the specific parts of government you know and one of the things that you hear you know people on the you know far right talk about is doing away with you know some of the things government does but what our findings i think suggest is people really don't necessarily want to do away with you know the 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 big parts of government you know so um so you know and, and you know proof of that is the fact that they express a, a good deal of trust in this. Um, but resuscitating people's feelings about the government as a whole, you know, seems like uh, an awfully um, difficult project in, in this regard. So one of the things that we, you know, consider towards the end of the book um, uh, because, you know, the political leaders are so politicized these days, you know, um, Republicans are just automatically going to dislike people uh, or, or things that are proposed by Democrats because they dislike the Democrats so much um, um, is to, you know, think about ways that um, other figures or um, nonpartisan institutions may be a solution to some of the problems that we face. And, you know, one of the things that, you know, I think might be kind of promising is to think about, um, you know, the issue that we talk about is climate change. And um, conservatives, uh, of course, are uh, skeptical about whether it's happening and skeptical about spending resources on it. But what um, we find in some of our research is that if you tell conservatives that the military which is an institution that they actually like and, you know, is not identified with the Democratic Party. If you point out that the military thinks climate change is a problem and is spending a lot of resources on it, um, then they're much more inclined to be willing to spend resources on it themselves compared with, say, if you tell them that the government in Washington is interested in spending uh, money on it. So what we kind of think about this as is a politics of kind of strange bedfellows. Um, You know, if you can, uh, you know, advise liberals that liberals that, that, you know, several important liberals in the environmental movement think that um, nuclear power has to be part of the solution, then liberals will go along with something that they might be predisposed not to go along with. Um, but again, it's taking partisan politicians kind of out of the mix because all they do is polarize opinion. And and Tom, just to sort of finish out our conversation, is, is, there, um, is there ultimately hope in the end of this book for uh, the the potential new whoever the new speaker of the house is going to be if you were to uh uh send this copy of this book to the new speaker um would they take away hope for what they're going to do or is this a largely unhopeful 
uh, term for the next speaker? Well, I'd certainly hate to sound unhopeful, um, but I, I do think um, any new leader, um, whether it's Paul Ryan or someone else, needs to um, you know, look at this situation with their eyes wide open and, and realize what the difficult challenges are. But as Mark suggests, though, I think one of the paths forward might be um, when elites are able to give cues um, that uh, perhaps cause ideologues in the mass public uh, to rethink some of their, um, uh, you know, the positions that they're predisposed to support so that, um, you know, um, if a if a Republican suggests, um, uh, you know, that we need to do more on climate change um, or if a Democrat suggests that we need, um, you know, perhaps to, uh, you know, reconsider uh, nuclear power. When you take those sort of counter stereotypical positions, I think it uh, allows ideologues in the mass public to uh, to reconsider and rethink some of their strongly held positions. The the book that we've been uh, – Mark, would you like to – Yeah, the one thing I'd like to add, and, yeah. and this is the thing that I, I think makes it so depressing, um, is the fact that um, – Tom is exactly right. You know, if our political elites took some counter stereotypical positions, it would tell their followers and the electorate to do it, but uh, to do the same thing. Um, but, you know, uh, people before Paul Ryan, a speaker, whether it was John Boehner over on the Senate side, um, in particular with Mitch McConnell, they've benefited so much from simply blocking everything that the Democrats wanted to do. So if you go back to 2008, you know, the or after the 2008 elections, the Republicans are in such dire straits. Um, uh, you would think that that would be, you know, the moment for um, their representatives to compromise, but instead they took a different. Tack, um, and decided to oppose everything that the the Democrats did, um, and they've been handsomely rewarded for it. Now both the the party leaders on both uh, House and Senate are uh, Republicans. Um, you know the majorities are, are both in Republican hands. So as helpful as it would be for Paul Ryan to take a different tack, it's going to be hard for him to do that um, in this present set of circumstances where, you know, his uh, predecessors have been so handsomely rewarded for having been, you know, makers of gridlock. The book is Why Washington Won't Work, one of the rare books that I've had on the podcast that doesn't have a subtitle. I'm not sure if you guys made that decision on purpose, but I love a book that doesn't have a subtitle. The book is published by University of Chicago Press by Mark Hetherington and Thomas Rudolph. Uh, Mark and Tom, thank you so much for your time today. Thanks for having us on.